seated. Let us join our hearts and minds together in confession for the ways in which we bury your light underneath layers of busyness and denial. Lord, have mercy upon us for the times we fail to recognize your light in the eyes of the hungry, the outcast, the stranger. Lord, have mercy upon us for the opportunities not taken to share your light with our children and parents and neighbors and friends. Lord, have mercy upon us. Amen. together in singing. Christ, there's a new creation. Behold, the old is past and gone. The new is come. Friends, believe in the good news of the gospel. In Jesus Christ, we are forgiven. Healed. Please stand. Glory to God, whose goodness shines on me, and to the Son, whose grace has poured on me, and to the Spirit, whose love has set me free, as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be.
been assured anew of our forgiveness, we share God's hope with one another. The peace of Christ be with you. And also with you. Please share the peace with one another. Peace of Christ be with you. Will you please pray with me? Startle us, O oh God, startle us anew with your truth. And by the power of your living spirit, open our eyes, our ears, our hearts, and our minds to these words, your holy word, that we might draw closer to Christ, empowered to go forth as his faithful disciples in the world. Amen. Our first reading from God's Word is taken from the 81st Psalm. Listen now to what the Spirit is saying to you and to the church. Sing for joy to God our strength. Shout aloud to the God of Jacob. Begin the music. Strike the tambourine. Play the melodious harp and lyre. Sound the ram's horn at the new moon and when the moon is full on the day of our feast. This is a decree for Israel, an ordinance of the God of Jacob. Our second reading this evening comes from the prophet Isaiah, the sixth chapter. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lofty, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphs were in attendance above him. Each had six wings. With two they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The pivots on the thresholds shook at the voices of those who called, and the house filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Yet my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphs flew to me, holding a live coal that had been taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. The seraph touched my mouth with it and said, Now that this has touched your lips, your guilt has departed, and your sin is blotted out. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here, I, here am I, send me. 
Our gospel reading is from Luke chapter 24. While they were talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and terrified and thought that they were seeing a ghost. He said to them, Why are you frightened? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Look at my hands and my feet. See that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. While in their joy they were disbelieving and still wondering, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Messiah is to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem." You are witnesses of these things, and see, I am sending upon you what my father promised. So stay here in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. This is the word of the Lord. Let us again pray. O Lord, uphold me, that I may uplift thee. Amen. A few years ago now, in the fall of the year, when there was another upcoming presidential election being bandied about in the daily news, humorist Garrison Keeler, the longtime host of NPR's A Prairie Home Companion, wrote an essay about a fall trip that he and some friends had taken to Baltimore. And on this trip, while wandering around downtown, they happened into an old stone church where an Anglo-Catholic service was going on, and they ended up taking part in it. The singing, Keeler wrote, was, oh my God, just heartbreakingly good. There were less than 30 of us in the pews, fewer than the names on the prayer list. And to hear, behold, how good and joyful it is, brethren, to dwell together in unity, sung so eloquently as the priests swung to their tasks, was to be present in an extravagant moment of grace that does not depend upon numbers or any other measure of success for its meaning, just as the Grand Canyon does not depend on busloads of tourists to be magnificent. Most of our brethren, bless them, he continues, are off enjoying brunch or reading the funnies or lifting weights at the gym, and our faithfulness does not make us better people. We simply happened to walk by and see this vast canyon of God's love and stand looking at it. 
Keeler went on to rhapsodize about what is essential about the work of worship that was going on in that church on that day, much like the work of worship that is going on here just now. And finally, noting that it was an election year, he concluded, now I'm an old, tired Democrat, sick of this infernal war that may go on for the rest of my life. I'm sick of politics today, the cleverness, the soullessness of it. I'm still angry at Al Gore for wearing those stupid sweaters in 2000. And I'm angry at everybody who voted for Ralph Nader. I hope the next time they turn the key in their ignition, their airbags blow up. But here in a stone church at an ancient ceremony, there is this moment of separation from all the griefs of the world. Ten men and women are singing a cappella, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless God's holy name, and their voices drench us fugitive worshipers kneeling, naked, trembling, needy, in the knowledge of grace. And when we arise and go out, the blessing follows us. Here in a stone church, at an ancient ceremony, a moment of separation from the griefs of the world, and when we arise and go out, the blessing follows us too. You've been doing this now for some good long while. Earlier today, I was in a luncheon meeting in a large room in this church in which there were two framed collages of photographs charting the life of this congregation from the late 1800s to the early 1980s. You've been at this for a long while. And you are so crucial to the life of this neighborhood, to the life of this city, this presbytery, our communion. And across these many years, various generations of you have continued this church's witness through one pastorate after another. And now we are at this moment when we gather around our dear friend Mark, whom we celebrate this day as Westlake Hill's new pastor. And as we do this, we just naturally surround him with our prayers and good wishes and fondest hopes for the future of his ministry here. And what a day this is. I've decided to preach on this occasion on what Jesus has to say about the power of staying. Now, that's a countercultural value if ever there was one. St. Benedict, that godly man who dreamed up the rule of Benedict, which Benedictines all over the world follow to this day, based his rule on four fundamental vows, three of them we know by memory, poverty, chastity, obedience. All of those vows, God knows, are hard enough. But the fourth vow is the one we are least likely to know, which makes me wonder if it's not the hardest one of all, 
the one we most enjoy suppressing, the vow of stability. Poverty, chastity, obedience, stability, staying. And not, I suspect, just staying in one place as if mobility by itself were some grievous sin. All of us who have moved in response to often a profound sense of call know better than that. Ministers move all the time. Ministry by design is a mobile calling. So with all due respect to St. Benedict, I would suggest that stability is not simply a matter of staying put, but rather a matter of staying at it. And staying at it here or anywhere else is hard. Have you noticed that? I will never forget one particularly contentious session meeting in the last congregation that I served before I came to the seminary. It was in the early 1990s. I had been there maybe three years. I was there for a total of 12 years before coming to Austin a little over 13 years ago. And this particular session meeting threw me for a loop. Honestly, I have forgotten what it was about. It could have been the challenges of parking. It could have been the challenges, you know about that one. It could have been the challenges of homelessness there in the center of that city. It could have been the budget. But whatever, there was, whatever it was, there was a divided vote. And that was an unusual thing there. 45 elders on the session, and the vote was something like 26 to 19. That just didn't happen, but it happened on this occasion. It devastated me. I went home. I wondered out loud if I could stay. The energy and the pressures of the city, they were a hard thing in particular ways, and and these elders had been thinly divided that night over a matter of substance. I thought about that rogues gallery of former pastors hanging on a prominent wall in one of our buildings. This rogues gallery had some imposing people on that wall going all the way back to 1858, some of them to be future seminary presidents, a future moderator or two. And I wondered in that moment if I had what it took to stay long enough to get my picture on that wall. <laughs> I thought in my mind about a recent lunch I had had with a well-known writer and journalist there in Atlanta who had spent the whole lunch going on and on about her favorite pastor in the whole world, the longest tenured pastor there something like 1940 to 1960 something. Everybody in town called him Dr. God. <laughs> he was an amazing man. I know that because she talked about him for that whole lunch. <laughs> How he visited over a thousand people a year and kept an annual log of each of his visits. How he was essentially the parish priest of all of Atlanta how the flags on the Capitol building across the street had flown at half-mast when he finally died, how they closed off that downtown street for his funeral, how once he had given a homeless person the shoes off of his feet and walked the three blocks to his office in his socks in the wintertime. I have never been that nice. 
how everybody knew him and loved him. And every time she listed another virtue, I lost a half an inch of height. I began that lunch at five feet, nine and a half inches, and by the time they served dessert, I was three and a half feet tall. And now on this evening, I looked into the bathroom mirror and I said to myself, Ted, you do not deserve to take up space on the planet. I wanted to leave. I wanted to take part in what my wife Kay has steadfastly chided me about, what they call the geographic cure, the lure of some place that I can go to next, some place over the hill where it is paradise. Now, I have it on good authority that pastors are not the only people who think like this. Church members are forever going off to some other church where it's going to be the kingdom of God, where there's never a capital campaign. <laughs> there's always unlimited parking. They sing your favorite hymns every Sunday. There's never a typo in the bulletin. I think she said to me that night, Ted, get over it. There is no geographic cure. The next morning, one of the elders who had been in that meeting the night before called me, a retired army colonel. Can we have lunch, he said, and over lunch we talked about this and that. And finally, this man, this son of Dr. God, this army man who was always a little gruff but deeply human, said, okay, here's why I asked you to lunch. He said, you need to know that during all of the years of my father's ministry, he had two migraine headaches a month. The first one was when he sat down to pay the bills. The second, and it came like clockwork, was when he got home from session meetings. <laughs> the colonel reached for the bill, got up from the table and said, I thought you might want to know that. Staying is hard. Staying in the city is hard. Will Williman, for 20 years, the chaplain at Duke until he became a Methodist bishop before he retired, gave some lectures a few years ago at the seminary, and in the course of what he was lecturing on, he remarked that often now in his job as, as bishop, people would ask him, what do you miss the most about academia? He said he always answered, I miss the admissions office. The admissions office. Why the admissions office? He said, I miss the admissions office because through their efforts, it was guaranteed that on every day of my time at Duke and at every hour of each day, I would be able to interact with and be in conversation with people who looked and thought just like me. He said, in the Methodist conference where I am now the bishop, churches are not permitted to have an admissions office, and we have to work with whomever Jesus drags to church. <laughs> That's surely part of why it's hard to stay. In great measure, on top of just what's always hard about the city, it's who Jesus is forever dragging to church. Starting, I would say, with those disciples, they were a motley lot, 
their resumes indicated very little proficiency in theology or ethics. They weren't the sharpest knives in the drawer, not the brightest bulbs on the Christmas tree, but Jesus decided to work with them. He spent three years grabbing them by the ankles and attempting to shake all the loose coins of their squishy piety out of their pockets, which, by the way, is what we do at seminary and for the same amount of time. And he taught those disciples about the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms and the Scriptures, the point of suffering in this world, the point of resurrection, the point of repentance, the point of forgiveness. And then too soon he was gone, crucified, and they scattered. It was devastating to them. A couple of them opted for the geographic cure and headed for Emmaus, which, even if not paradise, was at least not Jerusalem. On the way, of course, Jesus is revealed to them, full of resurrection life, and they rush back to Jerusalem to tell the others, and soon enough, as they are all gathered together, He's with them again. It's another teaching moment. The same lessons and discipleship that He hammered them with for three years, only this time it is properly understood, and they get it. And then as a kind of charge, Jesus tells them two things. First of all, He confers upon them their fundamental identity. He says, you are witnesses of these things, and then He charges them with staying. Stay here in the city, He says. That's your identity, too. You are witnesses charged with staying. You are witnesses right here on the edge of this great city, and what that means is that in a culture that is besotted with the primacy of the self, you are forever calling attention to another reality, and that is the transformation going on now that God is still working in the world. And not only are you charged with announcing that transformation, you are even now becoming a community of the transformed. Like any good witnesses, you are bearing testimony to what you have seen and experienced, and through that testimony which you are both announcing and putting into practice, the Word is getting out that God is very much still in this neighborhood and in this city. And why? Because of that staying power, your own living into the vow of stability. In Dallas, there was this old urban Presbyterian church a century ago called the City Temple in which the building just wore out, and so eventually they moved up beyond downtown and built a new building, and then that building wore out, and they moved further up north and built another one, all modern and airy and built out of native limestone. But they found a way to incorporate the stunning Tiffany stained glass windows from that original building, and architecturally it works. All those old windows assimilated into a modern building, kind of like this one. 
reminding us that tradition is forever in every generation a sustained conversation with the past. There was one window that was particularly captivating because of its sheer size and, and message. In the original building, it had taken up much of the chancel wall behind the pulpit and the choir, a larger-than-life image of Jesus the Good Shepherd, arms outstretched, and beneath him the words, come to me, all you who labor. Generations of people were greeted by that invitation as they came into that old sanctuary downtown, that place of retreat from the demands of the world, come to me, all you who labor. But when they did the new building, they did some serious theological thinking about that window. And they put it not in the front, but in the back, so that when worship is over, it soars over the narthex of that church, and, and, and people go back out into the city, and the invitation now somehow sets a different kind of tone. Come to me, all you who labor. Come out with me into this big, wide world and strive with me to see that world as God sees it. Strive with me to see how a certain posture toward this city echoes God's preoccupation throughout Scripture with the holy city, the city with foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Come out here, all you who labor, and stay here in the city. Stay out here where life is surrounded and defined by the bastions of culture and power and be witnesses of a counterculture called the kingdom of God, where the chief end of humanity is not to buy Gucci shoes, but to glorify God and enjoy God forever. You are witnesses of these things, says Jesus. There is no geographic cure, but there is a geographic imperative. Stay here in the city. Stay here not because you've been here so long anyway, not for the sheer sake of, well, my family was here, but because Jesus has put us here for a reason, and that is that the human community is the context for the coming of the kingdom of God. And the church is the place where we will be clothed with power from on high. And even now as we wait for that clothing, this rhythm of faith and hope and love and worship witnesses what our life together looks like. Stability, staying, is a virtue only insofar as it prepares us to welcome God who is coming into our midst right here. Stay here says Jesus. A while back, the Presbyterian seminary presidents and board chairs and their spouses met in New York up in the Upper West Side. We meet like this somewhere every year, and on this occasion we were in New York. One morning, our morning prayers were led by Rabbi Angela Bachdahl from the Central Synagogue, one of the largest Jewish congregations in the country. She was amazing. She played her guitar. She sang like Joni Mitchell. She led us in a great deal of singing, such beautiful singing. And then she taught us something about song itself. 
She said that every note in a song has a special relationship with the note before it and the note after it. They are not single notes related, unrelated to other notes and somehow capable of carrying the song by themselves. No, each note needs other notes to make the song. Each note is in a special and sacred relationship with two other notes, the one that came before and the one that follows it. And even while being sung, that note, she said, pauses to say to the note before it, thank you for being my teacher. And then that note says to the note that will follow it, I permit you to be more beautiful even than I am. And that, in my judgment, Mark, is such a gorgeous metaphor of who you are in this place and this time. In this generation of that ongoing song we sing as a church, we have stayed at it over the centuries and until this good moment. And you, Mark, you in this moment will step into the midst of these good people and will sound your note in that ongoing song, and you will sound it so spectacularly. You know, of course, so deeply indeed that it's not just you and your one note. It's a song. But if your note has the humility, as it does, to see itself as a connector, linking the song that has come before with the song that is yet to come, then the melody is unbroken. And the church, that great cloud of witnesses with staying power, continues still to pass on the gospel which is its treasure. So stay, Mark, as long as God needs you here. Stay with these good people and join your note with the song of their witness until people can come and see in fullness through word and table and font and in expectant living the good news that Jesus Christ is in our midst, filled with resurrection life. Stay, Mark, at least that long. In the name of God, Creator, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.
Please be seated. And join me in prayer. Good and generous God, we give you thanks on this wonderful occasion for the countless blessings you shower upon us, those that we recognize, and especially the multitude that we take for granted. We give you thanks for your call to Mark Ramsey to serve this congregation and ask your continued blessings on their ministry together. As we celebrate this evening, we also ask your blessings on the candidates for ministry in Mission Presbytery who are preparing to carry on the work of leading your people in the days ahead, and also those pastors serving today who are facing difficulties in their lives. May the offerings collected here tonight be given with a spirit of gratitude and generosity, and may they provide support and comfort to the candidates and pastors who receive them. We ask all of these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. cannot compare to the glory of your love there is no shadow in your presence no mortal man would dare to stand before your throne before the holy one of heaven It's only by your blood, and it's only through your mercy, Lord, I come. I bring an offering of worship to my King. No one on earth deserves the praises that I sing. Receive the honor that you're due. Oh Lord, I bring an offering to you. The sun cannot come. To the glory of your love There is no shadow in your presence No mortal man could dare To stand before your throne Before the Holy One of Heaven And it's only by your and it's only through your mercy, Lord, I come. I leave an offering of worship to my King. No one on earth deserves the praises that I sing. Jesus, may you 
Church of Jesus Christ through baptism, where we were marked as Christ's own forever by the work of the Holy Spirit. This is our common calling to be disciples and servants of Jesus Christ. Additionally, the church may ordain men and women to preach the word and administer the sacraments, to order the governance of the church and to provide for ministries of care and compassion in the world. It's for this purpose that we gather tonight to install Mark Ramsey as pastor of the Westlake Hills Presbyterian Church. Phil, would you present the pastor? Speaking for the congregation of Westlake Hills Presbyterian Church, with great joy, I present Mark Ramsey to be installed as pastor of our congregation. They seem genuinely pleased you're here. <laughs> Me too. I know you are. Now, Mark, we know that you have answered these constitutional questions before, mm -hmm. but we ask you again today, as you are installed as pastor of this congregation, Westlake Hills Presbyterian Church, mm -hmm. do you trust in Jesus Christ, your Savior, acknowledge him as Lord of all and head of the church, and through him believe in one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, do you? I do. Do you accept the scriptures of the Old and New Testament to be, by the Holy Spirit, the unique and authoritative witness to Jesus Christ in the church universal and God's word to you? I do. Do you sincerely receive and adopt the essential tenets of the Reformed faith as expressed in the confessions of our church 
as authentic and reliable expositions of what Scripture leads us to believe and do? And will you be instructed and led by these confessions as you lead the people of God? I do and I will. Will you fulfill your ministry in obedience to Jesus Christ under the authority of Scripture and be continually guided by our confessions? I will. Will you be governed by our church's polity and will you abide by its discipline? Will you be a friend among your colleagues in ministry, working with them, subject to the ordering of God's word and the spirit? I will. Will you, in your own life, seek to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, love your neighbors, and work for the reconciliation of the world? I will. Do you promise to further the peace, unity, and purity of the church? Will you pray for and seek to serve these people with energy, intelligence, imagination, and love? I will. Will you be a faithful minister of word and sacrament, proclaiming the good news, teaching faith, and caring for people? And will you be active in the government and discipline, serving in the councils of the church, and in your ministry, will you try to show the love and justice of Jesus Christ? I will. Phil, he answered correctly. <laughs> Do you have questions for the congregation? And now, questions for the congregation. Do we, the members of the church, accept Mark Ramsey as our pastor, chosen by God through the voice of this congregation to guide us in the way of Jesus Christ? Do we? Do we agree to pray for him, to encourage him, to respect his decisions, and to follow as he guides us, serving Jesus Christ, who alone is head of the church? Do we? Do we promise to pay him fairly and to provide for his welfare as he works among us, to stand by him in trouble and share his joys? Will we listen to the word he preaches, welcome his pastoral care, and honor his authority as he seeks to honor and obey Jesus Christ our Lord? Do we? And they answered correctly. I'm going to ask you if you will step down here, please, Mark, and ask the commission to come and lay hands on Mark. And I also invite all the children to come forward. And would you lay your hands on them that you might bring your own blessing to this? It's with prayer and the laying on of hands that Mark will receive his authority for leadership. And Pastor James Lee will lead us in prayer. Merciful God. We thank you for calling us out of the darkness and into your marvelous light. We thank you for these children who remind us of new life, hope, potential, joy, and the promises of our baptism. Lord, we thank you that you have called Mark and Westlake Hills to partner together with you for the sake of the kingdom Lord, give them staying power. Bless and keep Mark, Bridget, their family. Bind them up 
in your love. Gracious God, pour out your spirit upon Mark, whom you called by baptism as your very own. Lord, grant him the same mind that was in Christ Jesus. Give him a spirit of truthfulness, rightly to proclaim your word in Christ from pulpit, table, and font. And in the words and the actions of daily living, Lord, give him the gifts of your Holy Spirit to build up the church, to strengthen the common life of your people, and to lead with compassion and vision in the walk of faith and for the work of ministry. Give to your servant, Mark, and to all who serve as pastors among your people, gladness and strength, discipline and hope, humility, humor, and courage, and an abiding sense of your presence. In your glorious name we pray and ask it all. Amen. Mark, you are now installed as a minister of word and sacrament in and for this congregation. Be faithful and true in your ministry so that your whole life will bear witness to the crucified and risen Christ. Amen. Mark, we're all here today on a Wednesday. <laughs> we are very intentional to be here because we all want to welcome you to your ministry to this congregation. And we covenant, all of us, to pray for you and for this congregation that together you may show forth your love for God and your love for others in Christ's name. May it be so. At this point, the General Assembly moderator, Heath Rada, will come to charge the congregation, followed by Pastor Christy Farber, who is here from Mark's former congregation in North Carolina, who is here to charge him. Heath, as you come forward, I remind this group that it is customary to welcome the moderator by standing. Thank you. Please be seated. Thank you for honoring the position that I hold and for welcoming me here today. You know, I, uh, I, I thought as I had the invitation to give this charge to you as a congregation that uh, I should uh, utilize the uh, resources of the position I hold as moderator of the church and try to go into some detail about the theological understanding of you as congregants in terms of how you are to handle yourselves in this relationship. But I'm not. <laughs> I'm going to talk to you today as Heath Rader, a, a member of the church where Mark Ramsey was our pastor a person who benefited and grew tremendously under his love and leadership. And so I want to just talk to you personally, Heath, to you. I want to share with you four things that I hope you will consider as you live out your life with Mark. First of all, be open to new experiences. Mark is unique. We're all unique, but Mark is especially unique. <laughs> His, his style is his own. He has a remarkable ability to determine how and where to be involved in the life of the church. He knows how to establish boundaries, which is crucial for a pastor. 
And there may be, actually there will be times when you wished he was doing something differently. Maybe at a place where you think it would be good for him to be. Maybe saying something that you think it would be good for him to say. Maybe interpreting the word in a way that you don't quite agree with. But know that as time goes by, you will understand his gifts of discerning and expecting expectancy in the ways that he handles himself. And you will be thankful that he did what he did and made the choices he did. Number two, allow Mark to grow and learn. At this point, he doesn't know all that he needs to know about this congregation. I imagine there are one or two names he hadn't gotten down yet. I know for a fact, he's confessed it to me, he doesn't yet know how to navigate this building. Can you guys help him find his way around the church? And I know that um, he is still learning with whom he should initiate conversations as opposed to those who are going to initiate their thoughts and ideas with him. So, so remind him who you are over and over again. Don't assume after the first 20 times he's going to remember. It's not because he's not a brilliant man. He is. It's just a lot of names. And also show him the ways in which he can learn this community and understand who you are as the people of God. So do initiate with him, make suggestions, share your visions and hope for Westlake Presbyterian Church. And one thing I can promise you, what you see and hear is what you get. There is no pretense in Mark Ramsey. There is no unexpected data that is being held back from any of you. There are no games that are being played or subversive agendas that he's going to carry out. He doesn't know how to do that. Mark has no hidden agenda, and he doesn't believe in them. He's a straight shooter, and he would like for you to be the same with him. And I can tell you, it's a gift when you are. Number three, Mark's skills as a preacher, an administrator, a teacher, a mentor, a colleague, a counselor, a leader, and even his knowledge of technology are um, exceptional in many ways. In my opinion, he is one of the most complete packages I know as a pastor in our denomination. But, as he would be the first to say, he is not perfect, nor does he pretend to be, nor would he want a single one of you to think that he is. So allow his humanity to also come through. He will own up to those times when he tries something and it doesn't work. He will be honest enough to say that he wished he had done something differently or that he made a wrong choice or turn. He will share with you who he is and when he needs time to be with Bridget, his delightful daughter, and a husband to a terminally ill woman whom he has loved and cared for so generously over the years. You won't feel slighted when he does, I promise, because he always covers his bases. He will always be sure everything is cared for when he takes time to do things for himself. But encourage him and enable him to fulfill those roles as well as to have time to reflect and study and prepare and share even beyond your church walls. 
He will return with gifts that enlighten and delight you, I can promise. And finally, recognize that this call tonight is not just to Mark, nor is it just between Mark and God. You are the third party of this call. You are the critical third partner in this ministry. So participate with them. Dialogue with Mark. Offer him words of encouragement and support and even in loving ways, constructive suggestions. But most of all, and youngsters, boys and girls, I want you to listen to this one thing. I'm going to ask you and your families to do something. Put up a note on your bathroom mirror or on your refrigerator or by the door where you come and go in your house and let that note say something like this. Today, in partnership with God and with others, I'm going to pray for Mark Ramsey. Together with you and Mark as your partner, I can only imagine what might be getting ready to happen at West Lake Hills Presbyterian Church. And I can't wait to watch it unfold. I charge you to take responsibility to make it work. West Lake Hills, the entire PCUA, PCUSA is waiting to watch, see, hear, and eager to follow you as you develop new paths of understanding of who Christ is with Mark. May God bless you all. Mark, over the years that I have known you, I have heard you almost brag on multiple occasions about the way that you have remained under the radar in your ministry. And Heather and I were talking about this as we have traveled across the country yesterday, and we've been trying to figure out how to say this to you, so I'm just going to say it. <laughs> Mark, you do not live under the radar. <laughs> you have a reputation in this church and around the country, a reputation for your preaching, a reputation for nurturing staff, a reputation for growing imaginations, for strategic thinking. You have a reputation for caring about things that matter and letting everything else just go to the side. You would be surprised at how many people, pastors, presbytery people, come up to me and ask me, what is it like to work with Mark Ramsey? I think they're wondering about your creativity. There are members of presbytery. They know that you're really, really good at what you do, but for the life of them, they can't figure out the secret to making ministry work, and they're looking for it. They want to know how you have become so successful. And the thing that I know is that you have never cared about success. You've never cared about it in the way that so many people care about success. You've never cared about success even in the way a lot of ministers care about success. You have never tried to climb a ladder. You have never longed for your name to be on a marquee out in front of some church building. What I know about you 
is that you believe the gospel of Jesus Christ is good news for all people of peace and hope and justice. You have spent your entire ministry caring for all of God's people. And there are just a couple of things about the way God created you to be and the ways that I've seen you follow God as a minister of the gospel that I want to lift up this evening as a reminder in this new season, in this lovely and wonderful and faithful congregation of Westlake Hills Presbyterian Church. The first one is the discipline of joy that you have cultivated in your life. Joy is one of those things that God calls all of us to every single day. It's a thing as ministers we proclaim in worship every single Sunday, every time that we preside at the Lord's table. And in your seasoned life, you have learned that happiness is something that's fleeting and that good fortune comes and it goes. But I've watched you as you have practiced the discipline of joy and you have chosen to celebrate the gifts of today that you know that whatever comes today that that is your faithful calling to look at this moment. I have heard that come out of your mouth over and over again. So today, as you have moved away from the community that you know well in Asheville, today, as you are spending time diving deep into conversations with this group on race and talking about the sad horrible legacy of injustice in this country that has gotten your mind churning. And as you read the news about war and poverty and injustice and violence, and when you hear the stories of pain in the members of your congregation as they share their lives with you, this today is precisely the time to hold fast to the promise of God's joy and to continue to work on it. The second thing that I really hope you continue to live into faithfully is your passion for failure. Having listened to your sermon from last Sunday, I know that you've at least introduced your congregation to one of your dearest friends, Father Greg Boyle. For those of you who do not know Father Greg Boyle, he's the founder of Homeboy Industries in Los Angeles. It employs former gang members in all sorts of business ventures to help them get a new lease on life. Greg Boyle has said, if something is worth doing, it's worth failing at. After he opened Homeboy Industries, he opened a bakery in 1992 Boyle wanted to expand opportunities for the former gang members to gain employment, and he had a wonderful idea, homeboy plumbing. People always need a good plumber, he thought to himself. But homeboy plumbing turned out to be this major flop because people didn't want gang members coming into their homes, and somehow Greg Boyle just didn't see that one coming. 
If it's worth doing, it's worth failing. There is gospel truth to Boyle's statement. And I can't wait to see what new ideas you come up with as you work alongside this new congregation. I can't wait to hear the inspiration of the session at work as you dream together how to connect people better with God and with their neighbors. And even more, I can't wait to hear about all the things that you all try together that totally bomb. (laughs) The wonderful grand ideas that you are going to do in your ministry together that turn out to be nothing more than some great learning experiences. And I can't wait to hear how God moves in and through all of those failures because that is what God is in the business of doing. My charge to you is to continue to be oblivious to the way the world sees success so that you can faithfully live into this joyful ministry. My prayer for you is that you continue to take Jesus so seriously, his life, his ministry, his teaching, his relationships, his death, and his resurrection, so that you don't have to take yourself too seriously, so that you can fail with reckless, faithful abandon. Blessings to you in this new call. Please stand and join together in singing. Come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing, call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melodious sonnet, sung by flaming tongues above. Praise the mount, I'm upon it, mount of God's unchanging mind. Here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I'm come, and I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God. He to rescue me from danger, interposed his precious blood. So great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let that grace now, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee, prone to wander. 
heights above. Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. that you were here tonight. When I was here in April, I said I was in awe of the grace and direction of God, particularly in call. I'll triple that tonight. Uh, I am so grateful and so in awe of the movement of God. And now go forth from this place, trusting our God, made known to us mostly in Jesus Christ, who goes before you to show the way, goes above you to watch over you, goes behind you to push you into those places that you will not necessarily go on your own, goes beside you to be your companion and dwells within you to remind you that you are not alone and you are loved beyond your wildest imagination. And now may the fire of the Spirit's blessing shine brightly upon you and dwell deeply within you tonight and always. Amen.